So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 12th chapter, verses 35 through 40. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for clarity and illumination. Dear Lord, those are extraordinary words nestled away in the midst of this discussion of your second coming, the, the idea of servanthood. And, and I just pray that you would give me the words in some kind of... I know it'll be inadequate, uh, but some way to portray the extraordinary nature of what you just said, and, and then to be enacted by you later on, uh, on the night that you were taken into custody, to actually see the Lord of all creation serving those he came to save. We'll give you the glory for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Over the last several weeks and actually months now, we've been talking about what we have called, what I have called the cosmic initiative. And basically that's nothing more than the incarnation. It's the advent that we are in the midst of, of celebrating. But, but it looks at it more from the overall cosmic perspective, God taking on human flesh and coming to the world with some objectives, some reasons that he came. One, of course, was to destroy evil, not to make an alliance, but to destroy it. Secondly, it was to seek and save the lost, to find his people and to take them as a string of captives back and present them purified to his father. A third objective that we have discussed was to introduce the idea of the Trinity, to clarify that idea. Now, in the process, he has revealed or, again, clarified the kingdom standard of ethics. And it's kind of towards that end that we're going to discuss this morning because we've got yet another kind of a method, another perspective. In fact, Rather than being um, the, the sort of the military uh, uh, leader of spiritual warfare, we're going to talk about Jesus as the servant. In fact, one of the reasons that the Jews did not accept Jesus as their Savior or as their Messiah was because they didn't quite comprehend this whole idea of servanthood, of the Messiah coming in as a servant and not as a political and military leader. Now, they should have because they had the prophet Isaiah and other prophets who had made it quite clear that Jesus was going to come as a servant. In fact, Isaiah probably the most clear in his various servant songs. We get this from the 53rd chapter, one of the most famous of those songs. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Now, this is truly extraordinary. If you've been here, you know that as we have defined a kingdom, one of the aspects of a kingdom is it is led by a sovereign king, a king who rules sovereignly over his dominion and rules sovereignly over his subjects. Well, here and this morning, we are going to see that sovereign king willfully and, and under his own volition take on the position of a servant. And there was no other way for him to actually save condemned sinners other than to be a servant. And, and what's so important that we learn is that he did so not just to save us, but also to show us the way. 
as an example, as, as an understanding of what true kingdom greatness is. And brothers and sisters, if there is one message that the church needs to hear, it is servanthood. And it is the idea that greatness in the kingdom of heaven has to do with servanthood and not with whoever is the most powerful and the most wealthy and has the most people who follow him. So um, that's one of the things that we're going to look at this morning. Now, you might look at this passage and initially think that Luke is making a dramatic shift in his topic. In other words, he's been talking about pursuing the kingdom of God. He's been talking about kingdom heaven. I mean, kingdom treasure. And now all of a sudden, he's talking about the second coming and being ready for the second coming. And that is true, but we're going to look underneath that just a bit. And we will find that really he hasn't changed focus at all. That he's continuing with a conversation of the importance of the perspective of a kingdom dweller. Where is your reality and how do you respond to that reality? Now, we have seen that in the idea of anxiety. In other words, if you have a kingdom perspective, you're not going to worry about the small things. You're going to give and your trust to the Lord. We have talked about in the concept of just speaking the kingdom in general, that that is the perspective that we should have to seek his righteousness and to seek his kingdom. And then we saw last week the same thing in the perspective of kingdom treasure. What is kingdom treasure and how silly it is to build kingdom treasure up on this world rather than to have it for the glory of God in heaven. Well, this morning we're going to continue with that same thought, that same idea of perspective because a servant perspective is the perspective of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've also been looking at ways that we actually accomplish that? How do we seek the kingdom of God? How do we build up kingdom treasure? And we have looked at, first of all, it comes with the adoration and worship and honor of the king of that kingdom. And then secondly, that we would pursue the ethical standards of the kingdom to uphold them ourselves. And then thirdly, that we would advance the kingdom and defend it and protect it and focus on its spreading throughout the entire world to establish the kingdom of God in every corner of this world. Well, also this morning, we are going to see yet another of the aspects of how we build up kingdom treasure. In fact, one of the most important aspects, we're going to find that this is absolutely central to Christianity. And that is the idea of being a Christ-like, ever-ready, ever-watchful kingdom servant. And with that said, let's jump into the text. Again, we're going to see sort of the overlying discussion switch to the second coming and being ready. But again, we have that idea of your perspective underneath. So look in verse 35. Jesus gives us two images or metaphors of readiness here. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. The, when, when he says stay dressed, that's actually the emphatic imperative of the word, of the verb to be. Okay, be in a state of readiness continually. I, I like the way that it actually, that's sort of a gloss, if you will. The, the underlying Greek is interesting. It, it says, gird your loins for action, is actually what the, the, the verse says. Now, that means a lot to people in Jesus' day. It doesn't mean as much to us because we don't dress like they did. I mean, this idea goes all the way back. You may remember that when God gave Moses the Passover and Moses turned around and told the elders of Israel what they were to do, he said this in Exodus, now you shall eat it, meaning the Passover, in this manner, with your loins girded. Now, for those of us who wear pants, and, and, and women wear pants as much as men do, and typically, I mean, sometimes you'll see long dresses, and, and, and that's fine, but for the most part, the dresses and the skirts are in such a way that you can move around a little bit more easily. Well, in those days, even the men wore long flowing robes, and underneath those robes were, was a tunic and a loincloth, and only slaves actually worked in that guise. So therefore, if you're a soldier 
or if you're a worker, or if you are running for some reason, you're not going to get very far unless your loins are girded. And what that meant is they would take their long flowing robe, they would grab the back hem of it, and they would tightly pull it between their legs as far as they could. They wore a belt around them, they would pop the belt open and tuck that in their belt. That was girding your loins, and that meant that you were ready for anything. So that's what Jesus is saying, is be prepared, dress yourself, gird your loins for actions. In other words, be ready. And the second image that he gives us is to have your lamps lit. Now, we know that the lamps that he's talking about are probably just the little clay lamps. They had different configurations, but basically it was just a pool of olive oil with a wick in it it would give off about the same amount of light as a candle. And so we, of course, know that very famous parable at the end of Matthew about the ten maidens, five of whom were wise and had oil for their lamps, and five of them didn't. Now, when they are waiting to light those lamps, they are waiting to receive the bridegroom. And that is included in the idea of lighting one's lamp. To receive. In other words, there's something that's going to happen when the master comes. Now, this command is not to ready yourself, have your lamps ready to light. It is no, go ahead and light those lamps. In other words, that is a, a very aggressive state of readiness. To be ready to receive the master when he comes. To be in that that state of readiness. Now, Calvin sort of points out, the, you know, when Jesus tells parables, and that's what we're getting ready to, to, to launch into, is a little mini parable. Um, when he does, it, it, it is to, to explain some kind of a spiritual situation. So Calvin makes the point, sort of in a negative sense, that for the, the, the opposite of being ready, the opposite of being dressed for action or girding your loins, is laziness, spiritual laziness, indolence, to pay no attention to your spiritual side of your life, to have a, 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 a focus that is entirely on this world and not on the kingdom of heaven at all. And to not have your light lit, your lamp lit, is to have a brain that is closed. Uh, knowledge is important. To have an open mind. To be studying the word of God constantly. To, to get that revelation. Well, if your lamp is dead, if it's, if it's off, then you're, you're not open to that. So those are kinds of the ideas that Jesus starts off with before he tells this parable. Look in the 36th verse. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Now, there's a, a, a couple of words in there that we wanted to see. The waiting. Now, that's just another way of talking about uh, about readiness. But it is readiness that is like the idea of the lamp that is waiting for the master, so that something can happen, so that there can be an action, a serving that occurs when the master comes. Now, there's one word in there. I just want to touch on it right now because it's very important, and I think it's important for the way you will understand this overall passage. And that is the word master. When Jesus uses the word master here in the parable proper, he uses the Greek word kurios, which many of you are familiar with. A good Greek word to know what it means. Kurios refers to, sometimes it is used of Jesus to speak of his divinity. It is a, a, a sovereign master, if you will. Now we're going to go back into this later on and compare it to the word servant and make a relationship there. But just notice at this time that this is a word that refers to a sovereign master, a master whose will is law, at least within the context of where he is. Now, he goes to a wedding feast, and I think most of you recognize that a wedding feast in the Hebrew context was a most joyful event. In fact, in the Hebrew way of seeing things, it was one of the three most important days of a Hebrew's life. The day you were born, the day that you die, 
and the day that you get married. Unfortunately, we have lost that focus on that being the most important day of a person's life. But nonetheless, that was the way that the, the, the Hebrews saw it. And so, therefore, a wedding feast was a sumptuous event. And, and sometimes it would last two days, and sometimes it would last for as long as a week. And, and that's really the idea that we want to see here. We don't need to go into the mechanics of a, a, a wedding, but other than to say that it was of indeterminate length. In other words, there was no start and stop time. It was very vague. Basically, a, a wedding would last as long as the fortitude of the revelers lasted and as long as the food and wine lasted. You remember the, 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 the first miracle Jesus worked at Cana was at a wedding and they ran out of wine way early before they should have and it was a terrible faux pas. Well, it would, you know, if it's done correctly when the wine is done, well, everybody kind of goes home. So here's the point, though, that we need to understand is that there's no set time for the master to return from a wedding feast. It's not like he left and he told his servant, hey, I'll be back at noon on Monday. It's, the servant has no idea when the master is going to come back. And so that just intensifies the, the idea of readiness because, you, you know, you can be ready when you know something's going to happen. But if you don't know it's going to happen, it's going to happen within a broad time frame. Well, then being ready is something that is completely different. So there is an image of readiness here. Now, Next week, we're going to contrast this image of a good servant with the image of a servant who is not ready, a servant who is back laying in his bed. He was carousing right along with, uh, with the, with the uh, master because the master was gone. And so, therefore, he's not ready. He's not prepared. His loins are not girded. His lamp is not lit. And he is not waiting by the door in anticipation of the master coming back. And I think think that you know what the spiritual um, um, corollary is here. We're talking about the second coming. We're talking about the parousia. That's another word of talking about when Jesus comes back. And, and, and the whole point of the parousia, and Jesus is going to make the point in the last verse, is you have no idea. You do not know when it's going to happen. And so, therefore, the entire eschatology, big word, simply means how you prepare for the end times. The entire eschatology of the New Testament is simply wrapped up in the words, be ready. And that's why this is a discussion of readiness. Uh, it is talking about the coming. Now, Notice in the 37th and 38th verses, Jesus is going to talk about the blessedness of the servants who are awake when the master comes. Look in verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake. Now, jump down to verse 38. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake Blessed are those servants. So we have two different statements, but both of them with the same idea. Those who are ready, those who are awake are in a state of blessedness. If you've been around for the discussion of the Gospels for very long, we've run up against that word many times. It's an old friend now. Underlying the word blessed is the Greek word Makarios, another Greek word that is not a bad one to remember. And, and, and rather than speaking of doing something so that you might get a blessing, it speaks of being in a state of blessing and therefore doing something because of the result. You may remember at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Jesus had many things that he said were blessed. Luke picked up a few of them in his sixth chapter. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. In other words, these are states of blessings. The one who's poor, believe it or not, or accept it or not, and of course that's speaking of poor, poor spiritually, broken spiritually, bankrupt spiritually. Those who are poor in that sense are blessed because to them is the kingdom of God. 
Um, it is the result, and, and here's the way we begin to tie this in. To be in a state of blessedness is to have a kingdom perspective. In other words, the reason that you are going to be waiting for the master is because you have a kingdom perspective. Because you believe that the master is going to come back as he has promised at a time when very few people or no one is actually expecting it to happen. In other words, they are blessed because they have the inclination to be ready. You are blessed this morning. The reason you are blessed is because you have the inclination to come and worship God here. Most people don't have that inclination. They're going and doing all kinds of other things, but they are not in a state of blessedness because they don't have the inclination. These servants are in a state of blessedness, those servants who are waiting for the master to come, or at least know that without a shadow of a doubt that he will come and It governs the way that they lead their lives. Most of the world just goes their merry way without ever a second thought. And they run the risk of some of the most chilling verses in Scripture. For instance, when going back to that story of the ten maidens, the five who were not wise, what happened when they knocked at the door? The bridegroom came to the door and says, Truly I say to you, I don't know you. Matthew 7, I believe, 6 or 7, where he says the most chilling is that you would get to the, the gates of heaven and Jesus would look at you and say, I don't know you. You're not one of mine. You, you didn't profess me on earth, and therefore I do not profess you before the Father. That's the most devastating. We talked about that. That is the most devastating instant of your entire existence is when you stand before the throne of God in judgment and Jesus, and there's a decision whether or not Jesus is going to step forward and say, I profess or I declare that person as one of mine. If you deny him before men here, he will deny you before his father and before the angels there. That's devastating and that is not what it means to be blessed. To be blessed is exactly the opposite when these, um, uh, when these folks are waiting for their master. Uh, Another idea of blessed, I don't want to go too deeply into it, but another idea of blessedness is that those who are in a state of blessedness are looking forward to a future that is radically different from their present. The way the Greek dictionary states it is this, the promised future always involves a radical alteration of the present. And that's what it means to be blessed, to have a future that is so radically different. So therefore, those who are blessed are those who are knowing that Jesus will return. And, and, and regardless of how well you prepare for it, well, that's another thing. But you're blessed just to have that knowledge, to know that Jesus is indeed coming. Now, going back to the 37th verse, I I, want to try to make something clear here for you. Um, There in the 37th verse, he says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake. And there I told you we were going to look at that relationship. Um, The word master, as I've already said, underlying the word is kurios. It is a word that means Lord. It is a word that is often used of Jesus to talk about his divine lordship, that uh, that he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord of lords, king of kings. And, and, And in that sense, it means more than just a polite address. But in this particular use of the word, It refers to a master who is master over his servants by the nature that he owns them. It talks about a slave owner, a master of slaves, which was very common and an accepted practice in the times of Jesus. You hear about it a lot in Scripture. But here's what the Greek dictionary says about kurios in this exact usage. It refers to one who is in charge by virtue of possession, an owner. So in other words, there, this is more than just the owner of the household. This is the owner of the servants, and the word for servants bears that out. Another Greek word, not too bad to learn, is the word doulos, which refers literally to a slave. 
And that would be the literal translation here. Those who are uh, their Lord finds, those slaves that the Lord finds awake are the ones who are blessed. There is another word that is to be that is used for for servants or hired hands. Actually, it's the word from which we would get our word deacon, diaconos. It, it is a word that means to serve in that sense. But this is a word that at very least refers to a bond servant, someone who is a slave by choice. And what it does is it explains the relationship that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You have been bought with a Christ. I mean, with a price. He is our Lord and our master. We were slaves to sin and to this world and to the prince of the powers of the air. We are no longer slaves to him. We are now slaves to our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful place to be. And whether or not you look at that as a bondservant or an absolute slave, it is the same principle. He is our Lord and Savior. So that's important now to this uh, parable, and it will be double important when we get down to the 39th verse. Well, anyway, the blessed state that they are in is because they are awake. Both of these statements say that they're blessed because their master found them awake. And that's yet another of these metaphors or images of readiness to be awake. Now, when, when you're awake, you're conscious. Some of you are. Uh, you know, you're conscious of what's going on around you. And in other words, the reality that you live in, you are conscious of. When you go to sleep, and I would assume that we're talking about a deep sleep, well, you lose that consciousness. You're not living in the world in which you exist. And I think about a man who is driving through a war zone in the back of a bus, sleeping all the way through it. I mean, he is not in any way uh, in touch with his reality. He's in touch with, he's probably having dreams of, uh, of daisies and, and wide open fields. And, and if you're asleep and you're dreaming, you're living in a dream world. You're living in an altered reality. And so when we place that and we start talking about perspective and we start talking about the kingdom of God, well, those who are awake are those who are awake to the reality, not of the world that we live in where we can touch and feel it. That is our dream reality. The actual reality is the heavenly reality. That's where your citizenship is. You're a sojourner on this world. And those who are blessed are those who are living in that world with that perspective, pursuing the kingdom of God in that reality. And we've talked about that quite a bit. So that's the importance of of being awake um, in that sense. Now, jump down to the 38th verse and we'll take care of this and then I'll back up a little bit. Notice that he adds like a, a sort of a different dimension here. He says, if it comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake. Now, basically, he's talking about the watches of the night. And this is something that scholars like to argue about. It's it's purely an academic argument. Whether or not Luke, a Gentile, is talking about the Roman way of dividing the watches of the night. Or because he's writing in a Hebrew context, the Hebrew way of discussing that. And the difference is that the Romans divided the night into four watches. They both started at six and ended at six. But the Romans would divide them into four three-hour watches. And the Hebrew would divide the night into three four-hour watches. Now what that means is if Luke is using the Roman method, then it starts at nine and it ends at three. If he's using the Hebrew message, it starts at 10 p.m. and it's over at 6 a.m. But that's a completely moot point. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about is what if the master comes back in the wee hours of the morning? What if he is delayed? What if he doesn't come right away? And you're expecting him and you go to bed at night and you start getting sleepy at night. I'm sorry, at nine o'clock. That's when you normally go to bed. And here it is, 12, 1, 2, 3 in the morning and he's still not back. 
What does that give you? A license as a faithful servant who is ready, who has his loins girded, who have his, has his lamp lit. Does that give you license then to go to sleep and say, hey, you, you waited, you were too late and I had to get some sleep. No. So there's an idea of ongoingness, of, of longevity, of persistence, of staying power, if you will, in the readiness that is being discussed here. It's not just going to happen, you know, where you say, okay, I'll stay up to nine o'clock, and if you don't, you know, I'm, I'm off to bed. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not the level or the kind of, uh, of, uh, of readiness he's talking about. Now, some of you may have noticed that I uncharacteristically skipped over the second half of verse 37. And I, I normally like to take things as linearly as I possibly can. But the reason I skipped that is because the text tells us to. It, it actually sort of sets that apart. And, and let me explain and then kind of show you what I'm talking about. The, the, the Hebrews, like everybody, use literary forms when they would write things, and especially poetry. And when they wrote poetry, they had some very specified, I mean, like you, you, everyone knows a limerick is a poem, and it has a particular way of writing the words. Well, the Hebrews were the same way, but the difference in the Hebrews and us is that, the ancient Hebrews anyway, they rhymed thoughts, concepts, rather than words and sounds. And so when they would say something really important, they would create a mechanism called a chiasm. And many of you know what that chiasm is. And basically a chiasm is that you're going to match ideas working from the edges back towards the middle. Like for instance, you have over here idea number one, and then the, at the end of the statement you have idea number one repeated. And then the second one is going to be idea number two, and then you're going to back up a little bit, and there's idea number two again. And you keep moving backwards until you get to the middle, and the middle is what they are saying, this is really important. So we have a chiasm here. I want you to look at first the verse beginning of verse 37. Blessed are those servants. Now look at the end of verse 38. You have exactly the same phrase. Blessed are those servants. Back up. If you would just imagine a triangle, okay? Just imagine a triangle. And those two concepts are at the corner, the bases of that triangle. Now we're going to start working our way up the side of the triangle. Look at the, the, what comes next in verse 37. Whom the master finds awake. That's the idea, the concept of being awake. Now look in verse 38. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake. So we have a matching idea. So we've worked our way up the sides of that triangle to the isolate that which is truly important. That which is extraordinary. That which the writer wants to underline and underscore and set apart so that you don't miss it. That's what we're going to turn our attentions to now. One of the most extraordinary statements you'll find. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and have them, meaning the servants, recline at table and he will come and serve them. And it just... Try to put that into its context, and, and, and seriously, it, it's kind of a, of a mind-blowing situation because it, it is exactly opposite of the way it normally would be. In, in other words, if we were just to take this as a parable, and most of you know that a parable is a simple story from everyday life that makes a point. Well, Jesus is telling a parable, a simple story from everyday life that would never happen. Okay, And that's what's supposed to grab us. It, it, it's something that's not going to occur. Notice the way he starts it out, too. When he starts it out and says, truly I say to you. Now, most of you know that's that truth formula. That's the word amen. Amen, I say to you. So in other words, this is how Jesus would regularly set something apart and say, what I'm about to say next is really important. So not only do we have this as the middle of a chiasm, we also have it prefaced by this, truly I say to you. And by the way, this is even more significant in Luke because Luke uses this very rarely. 
only seven times in both of his books. Not at all in the book of Acts. This is only the second time in his gospel that he has actually used this phrase. Now he says, I tell you quite a bit. But the formal amen I say to you, this is the second time. The first time was back in Nazareth when he said, Verily I, I, I say to you that a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. Second time that he says it. So this is important. Bottom line is. So let's take a look at what he says. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. Now I hope you recognize that this is almost the same thing that he started out saying to his disciples. Dress yourself for action. Here he uses the exact same mechanism that the master, when he comes home, the kurios, the Lord, he girds his loins, not for action, but for service. Okay? Now, now, try to keep this in perspective. This is the God of the universe we're talking about. This is the one who made all that is with a single word. And all of the things that God is. He has come now and he is dressing himself for service. What does that mean? Well, we, we, don't have to, we don't have to wonder what it looks like. Because Jesus did this. Jesus dressed himself for service on the night that he was taken into custody when he was having the Passover meal with his disciples. This is what we read in the 13th chapter of John. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper... He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Brothers and sisters, when God entered space and time, when he came to this earth and put on the attributes of a, of, of a, of a human being, He did not come as an emperor. He did not come as a conqueror of nations. He came as a servant. Please mark that down. That is hugely significant. If you want to understand the nature of the kingdom of God, when God enters space and time, he came as a servant. He came to serve. And that is so hugely significant. Not only did he come to serve, Uh, He girded his loins for service. Not only did he do that, he didn't just wash their feet as he did in John 13. He had them recline at table. Okay, who reclines at table? You've got a servant and a master. Who's the one who reclines at table? The exalted one. The one who is in charge. The one who is being honored is the one who reclines at table while the servants serve him and take care of him. Do you know the way that this would actually happen? Let's put this into its real perspective, okay? For just a moment. Let's imagine that we are there and there that dutiful servant is by the door. He's he's got himself girded for action. He's he's got his lamp lit. He is all ready and he is awake, okay? And, and, And he's waiting for the master to come. Okay, here comes the knock at the door. What does the servant do? He immediately runs out. He gets the master's luggage. He brings him inside. He receives him for service. Probably the first thing that he would do would be to drop to his knees and wash his master's feet because they would be dirty from the long uh, voyage. He'd probably go fix him a bath so that he could um, uh, soak in it for a while. And while he's taking his bath, the servant would go fix his dinner. When the master got out of dinner, he would be the one to recline at table and the servant is going to to serve him dinner and wine and whatever else he wanted. Then when the dinner was over, it's probably early in the morning, he would take him off to bed, tuck him in, take his sandals and his clothes, clean them for the next day, and then lay down outside the door of his master's room so that he could hear him when he woke up so that he could get ready and make the master's breakfast. That's the reality. But that's not the way Jesus tells this. Jesus tells us that the master, the Lord, the king, the creator is the one who came not to serve but to be served. And that he would have his servants recline at table. And then he would just not just wash their feet. He would serve them. He would come to serve them. Later on we're going to read um, in Luke what happens when... 
people within the kingdom start arguing about who, who is the greatest. Brothers and sisters, as, like I said, if there's one thing that the church needs to know today, this is so important. When God came here, when he spent time on earth, he came as a servant. We read this later on in Luke. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader as you want, as one who serves. For who is it that, I'm sorry. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? This, this is mind-boggling, folks. If you try to get your mind around who God is and his omnipotence, his omniscience, his eternality, his infinity, his omnipresence, his sovereignty. This is the God of the universe who made all that is with a single word and he comes to earth and the way that he comes is as a servant. Where on earth? Does the arrogance in Christianity come from? Where on earth does the arrogance of pastors and leaders and churches? My dear brothers and sisters, this is true kingdom greatness. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, if you want a kingdom perspective, if you want to build up treasure in heaven and glorify God, you will take a seat at the end of the table, at the back of the room. You will be the last to be served and you will serve everyone else if you possibly can. That is the, the very essence of what it means to be Kingdom great is to be humble, is to be contrite, because that's the way that our Lord was when he came. If, if, if it was kingdom greatness to be an emperor, he would have come as the emperor of Rome. It would have been much quicker to take the world by storm with armies and chariots and people at your disposal. But Jesus came to teach exactly the opposite lesson. Brothers and sisters, if we can learn this, we are so Close to the kingdom of God. You know, I was blessed. I don't want to embarrass some people who were here. Oh, I don't mind embarrassing you. But I was blessed as a, in seminary, um, that uh, I had some magnificent teachers. It just happened to be that all the cogs turned, and at that particular time, there were some extraordinary men who were teaching at the seminary as I went. I'm talking about O. Palmer Robertson and Bob Raymond and John Gerstner and R.C. Sproul and Dr. D. James Kennedy. They're all there. These are my teachers. But I learned more about being a pastor from my beloved pastor in Haiti. First of all, Pastor Sidwan Lucian, and then his son, Pastor Jephthah Lucian. And me too is here, and Ephraim is here. Where's Ephraim? Somewhere, I knew that you were here, okay? And because from him, I learned how to be a servant. I, I, I learned what it was like to be humble and to take a place at the, at, at, at the end of the table and to be asked to come forward. And when I read this, I recognize that that is the greatest lesson that we can learn. And, and both as individuals and as a church, if we can learn this lesson, then we are going to be more like Christ. And that, after all, is what we are try, uh, striving to be, is to be more like Christ. Well, going on to the next verse, I mean, that's, that, that, that Jesus just slips that in there. And it's so easy to, to run past that. But he didn't really slip it in. He got a chiasm and that truth statement to set it apart. But notice what he says in verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming... He would not have left his house to be broken into. To be broken into is the idea of burrowing through the walls to steal his possessions. Uh, 
Now, there is something that I need to point out to you here, something very confusing in the ESV's translation. If you're looking on with the New American Standard or even the NIV, it is much more clear because the ESV uses the English word master here, the same English word that it has used previously in the parable proper. But this is a parable within a parable. It is a little illustrating parable to illustrate one of the points of the larger parable. And the word that is used for master is completely different. This is not the slave-owning master that's referring to Jesus. This is a master of the home. It is a homeowner. It is a householder. And he's just the owner of the possession. So it has nothing to do with the relationship between the kurios and the doulos that we talked about earlier. But it does have the relation of a man who has stuff, who has possessions. And will the thief that comes in the middle of the night, will he make off with those possessions. So that, that, that's an, an important part of this that we recognize that there is, that, that this is not exactly the same master. But there is another idea of readiness that is being expressed here. Because if the house owner knows that a thief is coming, then that house owner is going to be ready for the thief. Now, most thieves don't want confrontation. They, they don't want to meet the owners. They depend on stealth. The only thing they're interested in is the, 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 the possessions, the, the resources. They want to make off with the materials. They don't want to meet the owner because they might get into a fight and might actually turn into a much more serious crime like murder. And so therefore, they're going to be looking for a time when the owner's not paying attention. But in this particular sense, the owner of the possessions knows somehow that a thief is planning on breaking into his house. He doesn't know when, but he might imagine that it's going to be in one segment of time. So therefore, if he is ready, if he is watchful, then he is going to be ready to prevent the thief from taking his possessions. If he's not watchful, if he goes someplace else, if he sleeps deep, if he gets drunk, then the thief is going to be able to come in and take what he wants. So the idea of watchfulness is now added to what we've already learned about readiness. Remember, to be ready is to be, have your loins girded for action, to be ready to work, to run, to fight if necessary. To be ready is to have your lamp lit, minds open, hearts open, revealing the revelation of God. Now, this is the third aspect, to be watchful. And, and here's the kind of the way that this fits in with the larger um, parable. If you can imagine that first slave sitting by the door, he's got his loins girded, he's got his lamp lit, and he's wide awake. But he's on the inside of the door reading a book. Perfectly acceptable. He's waiting for his master to come home, but he's diverted. He's ready, but he's not watching. The slave that is watching is on the outside of the door, straining his eyes and ears into the darkness to either see or hear the first approach of his master. One is doing his duty. The other one cannot wait for the master to get there. Can't wait till he arrives. Is anticipating and longing for the return of the master. That is quite different, and it's a part of the kind of readiness that Jesus is talking about. Blessed is the one who's not only awake, but who is watching and longing for the return of their Lord. It's yet uh, an, an, another uh, idea um, because the second coming is going to come, as Paul said to the Th Thessalonians, is going to come like a thief in the night. So once again, I hope you see we're right back into the world of perspectives, right? We're right back into what is your perspective? What is your reality? Is your reality the second coming? Is your reality the fact that Jesus has promised you that he is going to come again and certain things are going to happen at that time? 
Or is your reality the world that is around you and the stuff of the world that completely occupies your time and you're not giving any second thought? Well, Jesus is talking about the blessedness of the servant who is ready for his return in that way. Can you imagine those who will stand before God at the end of time and try to say to him, if I had only known, if I had only known that this is the situation that would occur, I would have been ready too. Well, you do know. The Lord has promised it. It is written all through his book. It's been preached by pastors from every corner, every pulpit or every decent pulpit that Jesus is coming again. And the time is not known. And that's the reason Jesus ends with this very emphatic statement. Once again, verse 39, you also must be ready. Right there, brothers and sisters, is New Testament eschatology in a nutshell. That is all you need to know about the second coming. These guys that are out there making millions of dollars writing books and telling you that this sign is coming and that sign is coming and he's going to be here and he's going to be there. They have absolutely no clue. The only thing you need to remember about New Testament eschatology is not where or when, but that. Okay? He is coming again and you need to be ready. That's it. The rest of it you can throw away. Because that's the purpose of New Testament um, eschatology. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now we know that Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And we also know that when he talks about himself as the Son of Man, he's not just talking about himself as a human, his human nature. That he's talking about himself more of in a cosmic nature. That's why we've used the idea of the cosmic initiative. It is God's entire plan as it is being implemented by the Son. The Son who would leave his place in heaven, go through the most extraordinary humiliation, divest himself of his glory in the sense that he added the attributes of a human and walk amongst us and live that perfect life and go to the cross and be mocked and rejected, dying on the cross just so that he could lead us as a servant into salvation. That is the reality. That's what is talked about when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. So, so let me just share a hint with you. Just, just a little tidbit. When the Son of Man refers to himself, or when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, In the context of the second coming, you need to perk up and listen. You need to pay attention to what Jesus says when he refers to himself as the Son of Man in that context. Because when he comes again, it will not be as a master who then exalts his slaves and has them recline at table and serves them. That is not the way the Son of Man will return. If you want to know the way he's going to return, just simply turn to the book of Revelation where you will read things like this. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, that's the word of God, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. What a profound difference that is from what we just read where he's going to come and exalt his slaves and serve them and and, and make it possible for them to go to heaven and be with his father. This time when he comes as the son of man at the second coming, things will be different. As Matthew says in the 25th chapter, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So brothers and sisters. When Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And then he talks about the end of time. And he gives you specific instructions. Listen to him. Because that will be an entirely different situation. Than the one that we live in now. Now we we have some vital points here. and, and, And as I said. There's a topic change, or at least it seems like a topic change here. And so, so many com- commentators will just go right off on the second coming here and, and maybe include the idea of servanthood, but I, I, just, I, I just think it's the other way around. But that said, there are some important points that we take away as far as the second coming. This is really the first handling that Luke has done with that. 
And that is, first of all, that the second coming or the parousia is a fact. Brothers and sisters, it's a fact of history. God knows when it's going to be. It's already been determined. It has been determined before the foundations of the world. It cannot possibly change. It is part of his eternal decree. And it will indeed happen. The question, of course, is when. That's the second point. That we do not know the day or the time or the hour. And so, therefore, we should not waste one solitary minute thinking about when Jesus is going to come back. We should live every single day of our lives as if he was coming back today. Or the transverse of that is as if you go to him today, which might happen sooner. We don't know when it's going to happen. It might happen today. It might be 10 millennia from now. But the New Testament, what Jesus teaches here is that you be ready. You be ready and watchful for the return of, uh, of that. And so, therefore, th- th- those are the important things, that there is going to come, that the day and hour is not known, and that when Jesus comes back, it is not going to be as the suffering servant, but as the, um, the all-powerful Lion of Judah, the, 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 the King of kings and Lord of lords. But it, it's the underlying subject that I, I kind of want to leave with you here, because I think that that's where we're going next week, if, if I stay on this uh, on Christmas Eve. But because that's the, the idea that is going to continue. That's the idea of servanthood. This is really the first time Luke has talked about the second coming. But it is also the first time that he has talked about servanthood. He's introducing it here. Now, we've talked about obedience and discipleship. We've talked about those who, for instance, uh, Jesus saying, if you want to follow me and be my disciple, then deny yourself daily, pick up your cross and follow me. We can read the idea of servanthood into that. But this is the first place that he is explicitly discussed it and I hope that you realize that what he has made clear to us is that this is of the greatest importance and once again let me just re-emphasize this when God chose to become man when he entered space and time when he brought his redemptive plan to a close when he brought the covenantal plans that had been in place since the fall in the garden, when he finally came into this place, he did not come as an emperor. He did not come arrogantly. He came humbly and contrite and poor and as a servant. And so therefore, if we want to understand anything about what constitutes kingdom greatness, we will understand that that it is servanthood, and we will enact that. And as I said before, this is a lesson that the church needs to hear, and it's a lesson that we need to hear. I just want you to do something real quick as I bring this to a close. I'm going to assume, for the sake of argument, and I know this, I can't make this assumption, but just assume that everyone in, in this room, everyone that is part of this church is actually saved, born again, redeemed by Christ. We are all part of the church militant and we will all be part of the church triumphant. Look at the person next to you. Now, what I want you to recognize about that person who is next to you is that person, God entered space and time as a servant so that that person could be saved. In other words, the reason that he came as he came was so that he could, first of all, live a perfect life as God wanted the life to be lived. If you want to see God in the flesh, it is Jesus Christ. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And so, therefore, if you want to see God's heart as it is encapsulated or incarnated in a human being, it is Jesus Christ. And the person who is sitting next to you, Jesus Christ came as a servant so that he could redeem them, so that he could give his righteousness to them, so that he could, as a servant, hang on a cross with their sins upon them and suffer an eternity in hell in those three hours of holy darkness just as he did for you and for me. The person next to you is that important to the God of the universe that he would come and go through all of that, exalt them, place them at a point of, of, of reclining a table, giving them the service, dying for them, living for them, being resurrected for them, going to heaven and interceding for them even now. That person next to you is of the greatest value to the kingdom of God. Is he or she of the same value to you? You see, that's the lesson. Not only did Jesus come as a servant 
so that he could, he could save us. He came as a servant to show us what life is like in the kingdom of God. Do you think you're going to go to the kingdom of God in heaven and it's all going to be about you? Do you want to get ahead? Do you want to be the top dog? Do you want to sit at the front of the table? That's not going to happen. We're all going to be fighting for the last seat, right? And you know something, what a glorious thing that would be if here we all fought for the last seat. We all parked as far away as we could. When there was a call for service, everyone came. We had to turn you away and say, oh, I'm sorry, we can't. We have all the people to serve that we need. Every time we took an offering that we had to say, look, we, we're, we're, we're kind of flush with money here. We don't need any more. So, you know, let, let, let's focus on something else. I mean, that should be the way it should be in a church because we should all be looking out for each other. If there's anyone in our midst who has not enough and we have plenty, then we should be sharing it with those people. God, Christ died for the person next to you. Christ loved the person next to you. Christ exalted the person next to you. He was a servant to the person next to you. And therefore, if we want to be great, if we want to reflect Christ-likeness, which is what our goal is on this earth, and brothers and sisters, we're, we're, we're not going to be fighting to see who gets up front. We're going to be fighting who comes at the rear. So therefore, I just want to leave you with this. Do you know what we would become if we are a church filled with servants? Every single person is a servant to everyone else. We are servants to our Lord, first of all, because we are His but also, he was a servant to the one next to you, so we are servants to each of you. You know what that makes us? A kingdom church. Set apart, folks. Set apart in the world of churches. We become a kingdom church because that is what greatness in the kingdom of heaven is all about. Servanthood. It's not how many people are here. And that's not where our strength is. Our strength is not in the knowledge of the world that we have or the money of the world or the resources of the world or, or the influence that we have. Our strength as a church is in Christ-likeness. Our strength is in Christ. So our strength is going to be in Christ-like, ever-watchful, ever-ready, kingdom servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, make us a servant. We sing that song sometimes. Make me a servant. Make us servants. Make us servants of each other. Impress upon us the importance of servanthood and how we are uh, just following in your footsteps if we are. I know it's upside down. I know the kingdom of the world is completely different. And I know that too often the values of the world crowd in on us and we don't know the, the way we should go. Well, you've shown us. May we be like you. May we be the representatives of you and therefore be true kingdom servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.